Pixie Jenkins, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Mark, thanks for having us, mate. Really appreciate it, Mr. Peepers. You're off to the Winton Festival. Tell us, what can crowds expect? Well, it's the Way Out West Festival, of course. Uh, anybody that's Way Out West, they'll, they'll fit in there, <laughs> like, like some of us. Um, it's, uh, it's just a weekend of, uh, of really good uh, uh, Australian music and, and, and culture, really, in, in the heart of, of, what we, uh, of what some of us believe is the, the heart and soul of uh, Australian culture out there at Winton, yeah. It's interesting that it's so far out west. You guys have got to do a lot of travelling. Does that take away from it or does that add to it? We love it. Anybody who's anybody as an entertainer in Australia, we know about the tyranny of distance. Thank you. Uh, Ian Edis, we of the Never Never. Anybody who's anybody in Australian entertainment knows about the uh, the tyranny of distance in Australia. The years, the amount of travel that we have to do, millions of miles. What's the first thing you do when you head when you turn up at Winton? Oh, mate. I mean, a- apart from go to the motel and check out my room uh, or wherever I'm staying. Apart from that, uh, probably grab a cup of tea downtown somewhere. I do a I do a, a, a trip up and down the main street just to see what's happening. I check out the venue if, I, if, it's, uh, if it's open, if there's the sound guys, go and talk to them. Uh, but generally it's just that. There's nothing much to do when you first turn up in the town. At Winton, though, there's usually a bit more happening than that. Uh, uh, the area itself is just mindlessly beautiful. Uh, it doesn't matter where you look, there's a, there's a panoramic photo. You know, there's lots of friends out there like uh, John Elliott, the photographer who's, uh, who's been taking photographs and, and, and doing books for the country music stars for the last 30, 40, 50 years. I try to suck up to him as much as I can in case he wants to do mine. But no, just, uh, it's just a lovely area. It's uh, quite wonderful. The, some of the, the, I mean, the dinosaur exhibits uh, that are out in that area are quite extraordinary too. You talked about the motel room. Is that one of the things that uh, is a downside? Different bed, different area, different motel and constant moving around for what you need to do? The worst thing, right, is that you go to a motel and they'll go into instructional mode. Stop it. Especially with people that have been on the road 45 years. I don't want to know where the kettle or the iron is and I don't want to know about putting the key into a slot to turn the air conditioner on because I don't want to spend five minutes talking to you about that crap. I was talking to a sound guy who's doing a lot of travelling, and he was saying one of the downsides is the constant moving and motels and hotels and rooms, and it's always good to be back in his own bed. I don't know. I, I think I was born for the road, if that's the case, because uh, I don't... Uh, born for the road, it's good name for an album. Uh, born for the road. No, it's 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 uh, to me. Uh, it doesn't worry me at all. I just I love it. I love travelling. I love getting out there. Uh, I love even camping under the stars sometimes. You know, you know, just on the side of the road. If I get, uh, you know, if I get uh, too tired. But yeah, no, I I just love it. What's your favourite festival? Oh, have I got to say the Gimpy Muster? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, 27 years in a row I played at the Gimpy Muster. I was one of the feature artists there for 27 years in a row. And when Mary uh, Lou died, uh, the woman that was running it for a long, long, long time, and uh, I call them the vultures from Gimpy moved in, uh, I never got an email or a phone call. Not one email, not one phone call, never even, well, thank you for your service, but we don't want to use you again. Nothing, not a thing. It, w- it was actually quite... Uh, it was like losing an old friend, really. That's, that's what it was, and I don't think they understand that. 
the people that run these festivals. If you're there for a long, long, long time, like Tamworth, you know, to disregard you and to throw you away like as if you're just either we don't want you anymore or you're too old or we've had enough of you or whatever, but to, to just discard you without even a telephone call or an email, I think it's absolutely disgusting, but that's just, that's just me. Maybe that's just me. What do you put it down to? Why did they? Oh, ignorance, complete ignorance. I mean, you know, when Mary Lou passed away, uh, uh, she was running it, for, as I said, for many, many, many years. We loved her. We all loved her. She was a, she was a rock. Uh, you didn't want to cross her, <laughs> but she was lovely. Um, but uh, when she passed away, the festival completely changed. Uh, it lost character, quite frankly. It became a different festival. Big call. Uh, it, it was a big call to fill her shoes. Mm. And, the, the, you know, the first person they used uh, put a Ferris wheel up, uh, a Ferris wheel at the Gimpy Muster. And I remember distinctly going, well, this is ridiculous. And I took a trip up to the top. And guess what? You couldn't see the main stage from the top of the Ferris wheel. What was the point of that? Don't get me started. <laughs> so these days, the Gimpy Muster's still got a fun place in your heart? Well, for the old days, I met many of us, there was there was four or five artists that had been there for a quarter of a century and none of us were called back uh, when when uh, when the new uh, the new board, as it were, took over. Uh, none of it was called back. So an open letter to Gimpy Muster, get stuffed. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, you know, it, it was like losing an old friend and uh, that's what it felt like and it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. Well, they moved away from the Gimpy Country Music Muster just to be the Gimpy Muster yeah. and they wanted more rock. They had Barnsey, they had, yeah. you know, that more yeah. rocky feel to it. Yeah, and, and, and more money had to be spent on, on, uh, on uh, security, right? Because you had rum pigs out there going crazy. Uh, no, country music was, Gimby Muster was always a country music festival and it should have remained like that. I may be an old fogey, I am at 64, but it should have remained as a country music festival in my opinion, but that's nothing more, you know, we can't do anything about that. Do you think it should go back to its halcyon roots? Do you think it's sort of fallen away because of the way they've taken it? Without a doubt. If, if nobody can see that, then they're fools. Do it like all, a lot of the other smaller festivals are doing, uh, uh, that that are actually growing in numbers simply because they're catering for what used to be what Gimpy Muster and Tamworth used to cater for, a family-oriented festival, something that was for the whole family, not just for young people. Uh, it was for everybody, and that's something they need to learn again. Uh, because uh, even Winton, for instance, I'm going up next weekend as we talked about it, it's, uh, it's sort of like a back to basics. They're going back to the old stuff and that's what uh, that's what will pull them in, you know. I think people are getting, uh, I think there's a yearning even from young people to learn about uh, what Australia is and what Australia was, what Australia still is, what Australia can be. I think there's still a yearning for that even with young people and I think that's what they're missing out on. And I think when, when some festivals cater for that, they win in a big way. There's, a, there's an ownership of the festival. Is there a need to bring a, a, a new audience, a younger audience? Because a lot of the audiences at these festivals are elderly. They'll always be elderly. It's grey nomads that mostly, uh, that a lot of these festivals cater for in the first place. Some of them bring their kids, fine. But in the end, the kids are catered for with rock and roll festivals left, right and centre. 
Why do you need to cater for young people? The only reason is that these festivals turn to young people is they think they can make more money. And they don't. It falls away. Somebody should learn from that. Tamworth. <laughs> they don't. They don't care. Why not? Well, they don't care. They, they hold their hand out for the money uh, and then completely ignore it. They don't care as long as they get paid. No. What, the artists, the council? Oh, the, well, the, the whole lot. Uh, even the CMAA, the Country Music Association of Australia, is just uh, is, uh, is, is, uh, run by publishing and record company interests. That's, and it will always be the case. I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I'm just saying that's the case. That's what it is. It's, it's, uh, they try to build the market from, from a core group that's always been the same core group for 20 years. I mean, what artists have been at the top in Australian country music for the last 20, 30 years? The same group. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Has Tamworth lost its soul? I think a lot of the big festivals have lost their soul. Absolutely they have. Because they always try to cater for a younger audience. Now, the younger audience, the catering for... That, that's, a, that's a synonym for we want to make more money. But in the end, they don't because the older audience falls off. The audience that's always been with them falls off because they're not catering for them anymore. And that's the biggest problem with a lot of these festivals. It's a tough balance. I don't think it's very tough at all. I think they're just, what you've got is a whole range of people who, let me give you a parallel here with my career. I did the clubs in rural areas in Australia, uh, mostly, uh, uh, mostly out back New South Wales, top of Victoria, bottom of Queensland. And I did that for 40 years uh, with, with all the major clubs around everywhere. And I, I was pulling a good audience in those clubs as a solo artist in, on the weekends, as it were. Uh, what I found was that after about 20 to 25 years, the older managers were passing on and younger managers were moving in straight with an MBA from a university in one of the capital cities uh, trying to uh, uh, to up their management skills by taking on a club and, you know, making it live. You know, we'll get the young people in, we'll do that. Every one of them, nearly every one of them failed. Nearly every one of them failed. Simply because they didn't understand what entertainment is for those people. They assumed that, oh, well, I don't like using the word discotheque, but, you know, they wanted to put on more... Uh, uh, more modern music um, uh, for young people to come to the clubs. But young people didn't go to the clubs. They went to the pubs more, more than likely. Uh, but, but all of that changed. And so my work started to dwindle in those areas. But five or six years later, all of a sudden I was getting, oh, get that bloke back, that pixie bloke, because he was pulling people in. So all of a sudden the work came back again. And that's how I know the evidence is there because it, it, it mu I mustn't have been the only one. Uh, so it, it, it's this idea that, you know, that to cater for a younger audience is just a synonym for we want to make more money. And you don't make it by, by cutting the throats of the people that have helped you out for 30 or 40 years. You don't do it by taking their work away and putting in what you would deem more modern artists or whatever the word they use. So then who would you say would be the most cashed up demographic 
for audiences. Oh, definitely the 40 to 60-year-old, without a doubt. They've got the most disposable income. <laughs> why, why would you cater for a younger audience when you've got that demographic that's already working for you? It's bizarre. It's just bizarre. I, I, I fail to see, and, and I, I see it happening all over Australia at, at, at major festivals that have gone, oh, well, let's, let's cater for a younger audience, make more money, uh, and they failed and they've gone back again so that, you know, us, we start getting jobs again. You know, it, it happened in Western Australia at the Boy Up Brook. It happened in Tamworth. You know, it's happening in Tamworth. We see, you know, not so much Tamworth because Tamworth never cared. <laughs> They've never cared about their country, their uh, country music festival, uh, their uh, t- country music capital image. They've never cared about it. They've never capitalised on it. Uh, they've even scrunched the festival down and put the highway through the middle of it now. So they they really don't care at all. Uh, Gimpy Muster, we saw it happen there. We've we've seen it happen everywhere. But those you know what we're seeing is a whole lot of smaller festivals that have benefited dramatically out of these these major festivals changing their uh, their uh, their role. Is it though more of the same though when you say these smaller fringe festivals are essentially using a core group of artists by bringing, say, a more rocky feel or changing the music genre that some of these festivals... It's always more rocky feel. It's never... It's never... <laughs> it's never... Country music has never changed to folk, right? It's never, ever changed that way. Um it's 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 always been more rockier. That's the idea, and it's it's always failed. I I I I can't see it happening. Uh, you know because they they've even they they've made other events for that sort of thing now. You know um like uh, rocks. Uh, you know CMC rocks so and so CMC rocks so and so CM. That's an event that was that was made to cater for the uh, younger audience, as it were. Uh, uh, which has taken audiences away from some of the major festivals. So there's no need for those major festivals to change. Never was. With a lot of the country stars now starting to cross over and they are trying to become more rocky, is that because of what is happening with the festivals? They're trying to See, adapt? I, I don't believe that's true. I, I, I think it's actually going the other way. If you look at the evidence in America, the evidence is completely the other way around, that country is becoming more country again. And that's a fact. Just have a look what's happening in America. You can see that. How would you define sort of the country feel? What do you class as a country song or country music? Because the genre is so spread out these days. It is. It always has been. We can go back into history here if you want to. We could start with, uh, you know, the grandfather of, of, uh, of uh, the great grandfather of country music. Uh, many people would say Jimmy Rogers, the singing break man. But he was just an entertainer. I don't think people know the history of Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers wasn't always a country music entertainer. Country music, white man's blues, was starting to take off in the late in the in the in the uh, the early thirties. Was starting to take off. He changed from being a black-faced artist. He was a black-faced mammy. He was that sort of artist, and he put on a cowboy hat, mainly because he had consumption and couldn't couldn't do the, the rigorous touring anymore. So he put on a cowboy hat and started singing railroad songs. That's how Jimmy Rogers became Jimmy Rogers. If we move further on into country music history, we look at um, arguably the first rock and roll song in history because of what people team, deem rock and roll is the backbeat. It wasn't invented by rock around the clock, uh, Bill Haley, 
and his band at all. Arguably the world's first rock and roll song is Move It On Over by Hank Williams in 1948. Seven years before Rock Around the Clock was recorded. And Bill Haley, I might add, the so-called grandfather of rock and roll, before he had that album out, before he became the grandfather of rock and roll with Rock Around the Clock, with the backbeat, was a, a yodeling cowboy singer with a 10-gallon hat. You seem to be quite a music historian. Have you always been that? Does it always, does it interest you? Oh, it doesn't just interest me. It's what it's all about. If I, if I don't know, see, my whole show, my whole, everything I've been for 40, 50 years in my career has always been about trying to teach people about the history of country music and how it's developed uh, from, uh, uh, from the early days into Western Swing, uh, into uh, into uh, that rockabilly beat into the country music we know today. Um, you know, when in the 60s, when strings first started to come into country music, people were going, oh, no. And then, you know, Ray Charles put out that amazing album that had a lot of uh, Cindy Walker songs on it uh, that just wowed people. Uh, that was that was how country music changed. It changed in a in a in a uh, an organic way. Uh, uh, and then they tried to use uh, brass came in and, and so on. but it's all it always goes back to uh, songs about people heritage and culture it always goes back to that uh, it's it's and it always will be uh, country music is definable but it's never had the academia supplied to it like jazz and classical music and blues has. In fact, I went to university a few years ago because I was uh, uh, work was 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 running low, quite frankly, because of these, you know, places that I'd worked at for 40, 50 years and pulling good crowds. They wanted to make more money to that that will bring a younger audience in, so they discarded a lot of us. And so I, I went to university. Uh, to to see if the brain was still working, uh, so I I um, uh, I went to university and and a lecturer uh, who shall remain nameless, who actually went on to manage one of the the newer gimpy musters and failed terribly. Uh, sh- she sat there in class with me in her class and said to me, uh, "Modern rock music is a confluence." of jazz and blues and I was waiting for the and country it never came so I wrote a six page paper for the end of term uh, thesis about how she was wrong and and I actually got a high distinction for it (laughs) so uh, you know honestly it just it bothers me that that's being taught in schools and it still is you know they, they don't understand the importance of of, of what country music has done to both sides of the fence. Have you thought of moving across and, and diversifying, but you seem pretty strong in your roots? Oh, look, uh, Picture Down Country Theatre in the 90s, which really, you know, spurred me on to do all this, that was all about bringing the history of country music to people in a... In a, in a um, uh, a multimedia way. I used video and I used, you know, 
reactive stage sets and uh, and everything. Um, but I got no support from the industry at all in Tamworth, and that goes to show you how little uh, there is how 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 little the knowledge is. And there's wonderful people sitting in Tamworth who've got some amazing knowledge that never gets out. Uh, there's nowhere for them to uh, to express themselves. And, and uh, that's how I know that people just don't care, which is such a terrible shame. They do in America. They they care in America. I mean, Jimmy Rogers' guitars sitting there in a... A glass case in one of the music in the guitar in the uh, 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 music one of the music museums. I mean, they do care in America, mind you. They've probably got the money to care. I suppose they've got the money to care. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that means anything, but it, it just struck me as uh, that's probably how it is. Has the industry been good to you? The people have been good to me. My fans have been good to me. No, the industry sucks. <laughs> the industry sucks black holes. It doesn't look at their at their, 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 the core of their industry. They look at the the, the 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 stars on the outside. They never look at the the core of the industry, the backbone of the industry. They never look at that, especially not here in Australia. What do you put that down to? Oh, lots of things. I mean. I I I wouldn't. There'd be a there'd be a list this long, uh, you know, of things. Why? Yeah, I mean, money would be one of them. You know, uh, they don't see that there's any. Uh, they don't see there's any functionality in doing that. You know, I proposed years ago in Tamworth they should have a, a, uh, a, a, a hall of fame, that's an active gig with a coffee shop, right, uh, and a museum. Now they could do that. But nobody's ever come up with the money or the wherewithal to, to push it forward. I tried to get people interested for years, but just could never, ever just get the right group of people together at the right time. Do we not give enough acknowledgement to our industry from within? Oh, definitely not. I mean, what we do is we, we, we placate. Uh, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, uh, the busts in Tamworth. Right, the busts of our country music legends in Tamworth uh, is 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 funded by private money. They have to they have to scrabble and beg and borrow. There's no there's no funding for it per se. Uh, the museums are the same. There's no real funding, no real heart and soul behind it. Uh, the council don't really throw any money to it at all. Uh, to give you an idea of how. I, I always I always used to put this as a joke, and I, I there's a couple of things here which is probably going to really annoy people, but, you know, hey, I've done that for 50 years, haven't I? Uh, the fact of the matter is that, uh, oh, I'm one of the only people that sort of speak like this, and whether I'm right or wrong, time will tell. Uh, uh, to give you an example of it, um, one of the biggest events at the Country Music Festival is the Cavalcade down the main street of Tamworth. So what did they do one year, 10 or so years ago? They put a medium strip down the main street of Peel Street and put London plane trees in it. So now uh, people can't see one side of the street to the other. They have to position cameras in certain areas. There's no clear line of sight for the cavalcade anymore. That tells me that's, that's, that's a city that doesn't care about the country music, about the festival. Well, the organising people changed and they 
went to a, you know, became part of the council. So is it the council's fault? Well, partly. It's partly the Country Music Association. It's partly, it's partly the people of Tamworth who used to take holidays and hire their houses out to people during the Tamworth Country Music Festival because they don't like country music. It benefited them in many, many ways, uh, uh, such as lowering their, their rates, uh, doing lots of things. It brought money into the town. It did. What about Gympie? Does it bring enough money into Gympie? Because I, I don't see know it. about. I, I honestly can't comment about Gympie in that way. And besides that, it's in the Amamore State Forest, so I don't really know whether it brings money into the town. But you can only assume so, since all the motels are full. Oh, and prices rise, don't they? The motel prices rise uh, during those times, and don't. And anybody who says they don't is lying through their teeth. Because in Tamworth, we know, in Gympie Muster, during the Gympie Muster, we know that's the case. In fact, there's several motels that have been built because of the, here in Gympie, because of the Gympie Muster. Do they not uh, make it peak season so that they, are they justified in putting their prices up? Anybody's justified with putting their prices up for whatever reason they want. But when it's gouging, that's when it gets a little bit uh, rough for me. When it's absolute gouging, that's where it starts to hurt. Uh, I mean, I can give you lots of examples of this, but I, it's pointless. A $65 a night motel goes up to $120. That's gouging. That's gouging. It's nothing more than that. What started it all for you? Your... Oh. <laughs> Let's go back to the early days. Paul <sighs> Jenkins. Yes. Uh, I, I think people who call me Paul these days, they either... I either they've either known me for uh, forty to fifty years, or I owe them money. Uh, <laughs> one or the other. Uh, to take look, the first time I was in a studio, I was about sixteen year old, and I was called out to Hadley Records in Tamworth. Uh, Eric and Hilary Scott. Uh, uh, Eric Scott was a, one of the original uh, founding fathers of the of the Tamworth Country Music Festival as it were, in the country music capital idea um, uh, in the early 70s. Well, that was in the late 60s, but the early 70s when it started up, 72, 73. Um, Eric Scott from Hadley Records, I got a phone call from him one day to come out and play What a Friend We Have in Jesus behind one of Rick and Thel Carey's famous old gospel monologues. And that fact I'm very proud of. In fact, I've said that in my shows for 50-odd years. Uh, uh you know, it went from there. I've literally played on thousands of country music recordings. It would be thousands. There's no two ways about that. Uh, not hundreds, but thousands, literally. Um, uh, and uh, uh, it's been a joy, mostly a joy, uh, you know, uh, because a lot of these people too, a lot of these people are, I tend to think that a lot of our country music is actually folk music in a way because... Uh, it talks about culture and family and, 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 and who we are as Australians, all of that. A lot of it's on an amateur level. So people will write these songs about their family, their mothers, their fathers, their kids, their sons, their dogs, their cattle, their sheep, their farms. And those people will uh, want those songs recorded. Um, and and that's, that's how that's all been good for a lot of us because we've, we've recorded on those. And, and and many of us take it very, very seriously when we record on those songs. They mightn't be uh, number one hits. They mightn't be the best songs, but we we take them seriously. Every time we go into a studio, we play 
with our heart and our soul and we listen to the words and we take it. It, it, it actually moves me still today to think about a lot of these people that have, that have, that have, that have gone in and, 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 and opened their hearts up in, in this way and, and let us perform on these songs. And we don't get paid much money for it. We never have. Uh, uh, but that's not really what it's about. Uh, it's never has been. What took you to get into music, though, in the first place? Oh well, you know, I mean, I, I was a, a a bit of a musical child, I suppose. Very poor family, and when I say poor family, uh, uh, we we were poor uh, in the sense of my father didn't have a job and was rather itinerant uh, in the sense that he lacked some education, even though he was famous in the thirties as an ice skater. He he didn't have the the wherewithal. Uh, to move forward into the future for some whatever reason, my mother was a cripple uh, from when I and she died when I was thirteen in Tamworth, uh, and that's that's where I you know we we came through Gundawindi, Moree, Tamworth, from Tasmania to the Gold Coast to Gundawindi, for the reason that money was flittering away, uh, and uh, so by the time we got to Gundawindi, there was just nothing. We had nothing. Uh, lived in a flat above a, a bread shop above a laundry in Gundawindi. Um, uh, a lot of my early friends were Aboriginal kids uh, because I was small and and uh, shy and didn't get along uh, a lot with the, the taller cornstalk white, kid, white kids. Uh, they were double my size usually. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I learned to ride a bike from Gundawindi down to... Uh, this is getting away from the story a bit, but I, I, I learned to ride a bike with my dad from Gundawindi to Bogabilla to the Wobbly Boot Hotel when I was a kid. Uh, and years later, sang and, and played the song, uh, The Wobbly Boot Hotel, with Stan Costa, who wrote the damn thing. I mean, look, um, I, I was always musically oriented. I was always going to be on stage. It was, there was, that was inevitable. If I had my druthers, I would probably be an actor. I would probably be a, uh, uh, a, a musical, com- you know, in musical comedy, but I'm not the tall, uh, lanky type. Uh, to do Oklahomas and stuff like that, even though I've played in those uh, those sort of things. That and Fiddler on the Roof, I believe. Well, I did Fiddler on the Roof. I did Oklahoma. Uh, I did, yeah, I, I, South Pacific when I was a kid. If I had my druthers, I'd probably be doing that. But but as it is, uh, the violin, uh, my father bought me a violin for my 13th birthday, just after mum died, uh, desperately trying to keep me off the streets. Uh, it succeeded. Uh, I, I, I just loved this thing. I... When I opened the case up, I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life with it. It was one of those sort of spiritual things almost. Wow. Uh, it was rather like that. I still remember it, uh, getting chills, looking at it, the instrument, knowing that, wow, I want to, what is this? I want to learn how to play this. Uh, Out in the bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where, that's where the idea of making bird noises and stuff came from. Later on when I worked with people like John Williamson was, was my, the bird noises and stuff, you know, I was... I, I, it was just, it was, just a thing to do as a, as a rather strange young kid growing up in the bush. Because uh, it's a strange instrument to be starting on. Um, a lot say start on guitar. Well, it's one of those instruments, isn't it? Guitars everywhere. It's ubiquitous with, with uh, learning how to play songs. You, you know, you know three chords. You know every song in the world, uh, literally. Did you look at guitar? Oh, I play guitar. I play mandolin. I play, uh, you know, uh, uh, bass, drums, keyboards. I do all sorts of things in the studio. I, I, I produce songs for, for people now myself. Uh, 
for bagger all <laughs> because I, I, I feel that that's the right thing to do, you know, to give my talent back to the people that helped me uh, bring it forward. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, look, I'm, I'm, I've never, I've always, I've always wanted to be well known, a star, as it were, but I never had this, the, those, those things. I wasn't handsome, tall. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I had a good voice, but it was high, uh, girly sort of a voice. I played the fiddle. I didn't play, but I made up my mind when I, uh, when I left Buddy Williams in 1979, touring with him for nine months, going around the Aboriginal missions through, through their uh, first year of self-determination and seeing what the white people had done to them. That was, that was really what uh, cemented my love of my First Nation people. Uh, that, and, and I left Buddy Williams and I bypassed Tamworth on the way back and went straight to Sydney to make my fame and fortune. I'm still waiting on the money. <laughs> uh, but I went to Sydney to make my fame and fortune and luckily through through sheer luck and I, luck is uh, we know what luck's all about uh, being prepared when the opportunity comes along well I was prepared and the opportunity came along uh, so I got into one of the biggest club shows in Australia's history uh, Lester Coombs Are You Ready for the Country um, that was extraordinary two years uh, hundreds of literally hundreds of thousands of people saw me. I was the first thing they saw in the show because I was pushed out the front like a little boy playing Red River Valley to to Lester's monologue, and then the curtains opened to this huge production show. So I was the first thing that people saw for two years back in the early eighties. Then I went on to play with Digger Ravel. Then I got uh, the phone call to play with Buller McCanker, and then John Williamson, and then I left John uh, and realised that I. I had an audience. Uh, uh, I had my own audience, and so that's where Pixieland Country Theatre came in. Uh, and I built that up over five years. That's, uh, that's the hands of fame. The, I'm the only instrumentalist in the Wax Museum in Tamworth. I'm very, very proud of that fact. Uh, uh, I, I got my own golden. You know, I was with uh, the Hired Hands back in '84. We got uh, that was my first golden guitar with the band. Uh, I won two of my own back to back in the early '90s. But I've been a part of uh, Gold Guitar Wins for 30 or 40 years. I've played with Keith Urban and people like that. Uh, uh, I did three albums of Jimmy Barnes. It hasn't just been country music. It's been, you know, uh, it's been a lot of things. So, What was he like to work with? Oh, fabulous because he had a lot of money. <laughs> Tell me about the experience working with someone like Jimmy Barnes, who's quite an icon, and to have a fiddle player, you wouldn't expect it. It was during his phase when he was, uh, he was looking to do a... Everybody was doing the unplugged thing. Well, the unplugged thing was great for country music uh, musicians. Why? Because we were the only ones that could play unplugged. <laughs> we were the only musicians that could actually get up there and, and, and really pull it out while you know, uh, playing unplugged. With the fiddle, just to give an example, uh, you know, uh, the fiddle's a rather unique instrument because uh, you can you can do things like uh, a really aggressive harmonic playing that's, you know... You can, you can make it sound really aggressive if you, if you want to. And, 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 uh, and, and so 
during that time when Jimmy was looking at doing those things, I played on the album before uh, Flesh and Wood and then Flesh and Wood, which was the big uh, sort of acoustic uh, album. I got to play with some of the greatest uh, rock musicians in Australia's history during that time. It was wonderful. So, you know, my name has been around, so it's that's good. That's good. You talk about some of the big rock musicians. Let's name names. And who were some of your favourites? Oh, well, look, Jimmy was fun because uh, he, he, he really had... He had the backs behind him. Uh, he had, a, he had a, an amazing studio under his house uh, down the south coast at the time. Uh, and uh, Jimmy loves, absolutely loves his country music. And a lot, a, lot, a lot of people don't know this, but Jimmy Barnes loves his country music, loves Hank Williams. So uh, he, uh, he, loves, he loved playing Hank Williams late at night after sessions and stuff, and it was just a lot of fun, you know. And... Uh, it's it's really nice uh, staying at a, you know, what in essence is a five star motel room uh, with a chef on call twenty four hours. That's really cool, uh, and he'd do things like um, oh, we did some cool things like put the fiddle through uh, twin Leslies either side of a studio, razz it up a bit. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, over the years I've. Uh, with various bands and, and, and artists and, and groups that I've played with. I've performed with uh, Joe Cocker. I believe you also played with Cher. Uh, Cher, we did. When I was with uh, uh, Digger Ravel, we supported Cher in her big uh, 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 Las Vegas show she brought over to Australia in the 80s. That was amazing. 30-piece orchestra and everything was extraordinary. Uh, she, A lot of people didn't know this, uh, but it was quite extraordinary. Cher was on stage. Um, she opened the show as one of her characters from the old 60s uh, a television show, as a cleaning woman. She was the cleaning woman, right? So you, you're watching Cher on stage uh, doing this, you know, 15 minutes as the show starts cleaning the stage and everybody's laughing at Cher during this. Cher. Well, it wasn't Cher, it was a female impersonator. <laughs> but everybody thought it was Cher. She had two female impersonators in the show. One did her and the other guy, Kenny Sasha, did uh, uh, Dion, uh, Donna, Dion Warwick and Bette Midler so well that it was just exactly like the real uh, people. Uh, and uh, that enabled Cher to do these amazing split-section costume changes, which wowed the audience going, <laughs> how the hell did she do that? Well, she didn't. She was already fitted out out the back. She'd come up on a big dais, and it was the other guy who slipped into a stairwell on stage, disappeared, and you thought... How did that happen? Cher disappeared and then it reappeared. Well, it, it wasn't. It was one of the female impersonators. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, then I, uh, I mean, one of the highlights of my career is that Bob Dylan uh, wow. walked out of backstage when I supported Bob Dylan in Tamworth and I was the only artist. Uh, still to this day, I have no idea how this happened or how it eventuated. But there are some people in the industry who really love what I do. And I, I don't know who you are. I know some of you. Others I don't. But I big hug. Um, uh, but uh, I don't know. But he got rid of the other support acts he had on the tour. And I was the only support act in Tamworth. So it was just amazing. And I walked in uh, and I've got no pictures of this. And this, see, a lot of this stuff was done before social media, which is really unfortunate for me. Uh, but Bob Dylan walked out of the dressing room in a white cowboy outfit, head to toe leather, leather hat, white, all white thing, jeans, the whole thing, walked out and walked out, walked up to me and he's gone, 
you must be Pixie. And I've got that in my head. Bob Dylan knew my name. <laughs> Pixie, how did that name come about in the first place? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I, I dread being asked this because it's not a nice story. Um, Lester Coombs was a tyrant uh, back in 81... 1981, 1982, an absolute tyrant. I learnt so much from Lester. Yeah, I, I absolutely adore Lester. But an absolute, there's there's 90% of people who work with Lester hate him and there's the other 10% who knew exactly how good he was. And I'm one of that 10%. Uh, uh, he was an absolute tyrant. He had a, a, a load of techniques that he used to uh, put his tyranny on people uh, with. Um, you can't argue with a man that 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 walks out and and blasts you for doing something wrong in the last show, but he's all he's got on is a pair of underpants and a wet patch at the front. You can't argue with a man that does that. I think that was a technique of his. Anyway, but he, he used to come out and blast people. He'd pick on them, right? Uh, but for some reason, he saw talent in me, and he he used me in a certain way that just. And I, I learned a lot from Lester. But one of the dancing girls one night, it was a big, huge, big show. You've got to understand, Lester's show was, it had backstage projection before any of that was used back in 81, 82. Like he knew what was happening. He really did. Uh, flash pots, backstage projection, uh, raised daises and, and stuff and, and dances and just costumes galore that were always changed. It was a huge Las Vegas style show in Australia. Nobody, uh, anyway, um, he, um, one of the dancing girls one night, I'm, I've just finished a, a rip-roaring thing and we've raced off stage to change into something else with LED lights on the hat and things and stuff. And, and, and it was changing. And all of a sudden I heard this crunch and I knew exactly what it was. It was my fiddle had been stood on. Oh. Somebody had stood on my fiddle. <laughs> I just knew it. And I didn't have a backup one. And it was one of the dancing girls. And I just roared at her when she came off stage I was so pissed off and I roared at her I said you and she was you got to understand <laughs> she was six foot and I was tiny little thing <laughs> she was six, and she just she just erupted at me and pushed me and and basically said piss off you little pixie and the band <laughs> the band the rest of the band absolutely just rolled with laughter over it and that's where the name stuck that's and it just went from show to show uh, musos with oh you're getting pixie you know and, and, oh shit uh and that's that's just how it went on and that's how i got the name she unfortunately the dancing girl uh, and why i say it's a tragic story horrible story is the dancing girl uh she died in a cocaine host uh, heist in los angeles uh, in the in the, the late eighties, uh, she got killed in a shootout in Los Angeles. Yeah, bit of a tragic story. But is it something that you identify now with being Pixie? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing's been revolved around that. I've got my logo that I, you know, the Pixie logo. I've signed records with Pixie, the Pixie logo. The Pixie logo has been a uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me. Thanks. Uh, I can't even remember her name anymore. God love you, whoever you are. Uh, where yeah. 
You lost a violin at that stage. What are they worth, the violin that we've got sitting on the oh, look, desk this, there? Th- truly, uh, I've, never really, uh, I've never really had the money or the wherewithal to buy. I, I've, I've had a lot of sponsors over the years, uh, which has been really good for me, especially epochstrings.com.au. Uh, they've been really good uh, to me. Uh, this is this is just uh, uh, made in. This is made by uh, uh, Animato Springs in Brisbane. It's a it's a well it's it's brought in. It's a just a five hundred dollar acoustic fiddle. That's all that is. A five hundred dollar acoustic violin. A lovely one. I played about twenty of them that day, and I picked this one because it's got a nice tone. Uh, but I know people who spend five hundred dollars on a bow. I've never spent any more than $30 on a bow because they're just picks to me. I throw them away and hit people with them and poke people up the bum and do all sorts of stupid things with the bow. I'd never want to get an expensive one, but uh, my electric fiddles are, uh, at the moment, as as I said, sponsored by epochstrings.com.au. Wonderful Australian company. Uh, They've been doing research into into making electric fiddles with all different colours for kids and they've got four strings and five strings they do cellos and double basses now and they're a wonderful company yeah have you played any really expensive instruments i had okay here's a story when i was uh 14 15 year old i and i've got a this is where i i i was going to allude to this at some stage i'm glad you asked the question because my violin teacher, my only, one and only violin teacher, was a guy called Slava Tyrov. Uh, he was a Russian uh, guy. His main instrument was saxophone, not violin at all. And he did play in Louis Armstrong's band. Wow. Yep. I've seen the picture. Uh, he was an old man. He died, uh, he died choking on a fishbone in the Tamworth Cafe. Uh which was oh, it was horrendous for me. Uh, I remember going up to the lesson on the Thursday and he wasn't there and I knew something was wrong because he just didn't miss a lesson. He didn't do it. How old were you at this stage? Oh, I was only 14 or 15. Uh, 14, 15. But I, I had some uh, acumen for the fiddle. It just, I wanted to play it. and He, he saw that. He was a, a hard man, uh, uh, he, he didn't suffer fools. Uh, consequently, he didn't have many pupils because of this. <laughs> um, but he, my father, uh, this is just after mum died, of course, bought, bought me this violin out of the hard-earned money that he got from digging council roads or something. Uh, he, uh, it was a terrible violin. It was a lark. It cost about, I don't know, $80 at the time. Slava hated it. <laughs> he also hated anybody that <clears throat> that if he spent time with you and spent time on you if you threw that in the gutter if you threw that away with by not practicing or not doing something he told you to do he would get violently angry and this is probably why he didn't have many pupils but i remember this particular day it was about six months I'd been working with him and I didn't know that he wasn't charging my father any money. I didn't know. Wow. I didn't know that he he wasn't... I was... I was he only had six pupils, uh, but he wasn't charging for my tutoring. Uh, he was doing it out because he believed I had something. 
uh, I didn't practice this week and he knew when <laughs> I came and he got so angry, red in the face and I got really scared. He grabbed my violin and threw it out the window and it smashed on the driveway. I was in tears. I ran out in tears, just, just ran away in tears. My dad, of course, I uh, went up to see him. So, you know, what did you do? I, I don't know what they said. But anyway, my dad said, you've got to go up to practice tomorrow. And so I've got a violin. Slava wants to go up. Slava gave me, gave me his Guarneri to play. He had a Guarneri violin. It was worth about $30,000. Wow. And he gave me his violin to play. Now, long and short of it is that after he part, I had this for about six weeks. I was playing on this wonderful instrument. It was extraordinary. It just, it sounded like angels. To me, it was just, it was so far away from from the lark violin, the Chinese violin that I had. It was ridiculous. Uh, it just sang like, like angels and... Uh, uh, he died six weeks later. His daughter came up from Sydney and repossessed it. And I never saw it again, never saw anything again. That was it. But my second violin was, uh, you know, as fate was have it, uh, fell into my hands about three weeks later. Uh, it was sold to me by this guy in the street in Tamworth. And it was green coloured with abalone inlay all over it. It was a gypsy fiddle. And he sold it to me for the princely sum of $50. And I thought, what was that? It turned out to be stolen. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be stolen uh, from Buddy Weston, uh, I believe. Uh, and Buddy Weston came up to me a year or so later at the Tamworth Festival and said, that's, that's, that's my violin. Oops. Uh, but he said, you play it better than I could. <laughs> Keep it. Uh, that, was, that was that. Did uh, he know you bought it? Yeah, yeah, for fifty dollars. He said, oh, you know, I, I paid about two hundred dollars for it." He said, uh, "Whatever, I don't know," but it was it just looked lovely because it had. A, anyway, it cracked up in the heat of the Northern Territory about two years later when I was up there doing something or other. It just fell apart one day because they're only made with uh, water-based glues. I don't people don't realise how uh, how amazingly uh, fragile fragile they actually are, mm. even though they're really really strong in a in a tensile way it's 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 everything that's holding it together in a but if that anything fails it it completely fails how much do you look after them how where do they sit on the the totem pole of what you like to do when you're I'm, I'm just so terrible <laughs> so bad <laughs> i'm so bad I, honestly, I, 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 I don't think I deserve an instrument, really. I, I just treat them something terribly now. Is that just um, a little bit of complacency uh, that you've mm. played them for so long? This is where it gets hard for me when people ask me these sort of questions because I go, well, like I've always classed myself as an entertainer. I've never seen myself as a violin player or a fiddle player, uh, even though I've, I've obviously been one of the best for whatever length of time. Uh, and I obviously still get work for that in studios and stuff. But I, I see myself more as an entertainer. Uh, it's something that's really interesting. It, it, it's, it's, it's part of this historic build-up of how a story, of how uh, uh, country music and stories evolve out of it. Um, when I was working the ships, the boats, the cruise ships, they needed to put 
you in, they need to put you in a pigeonhole so they, they know what to call you, they know how to pay you, what level, blah, blah, blah. So I was put in the comedy instrumentalist pigeonhole. Now, what that meant is, to me, uh, comedy instrumentalist. So you're funny, you don't play the instrument very well, but you're funny and that's what gets you through it. Well, I thought, well, surely there's a way where I can play the instrument really well, but be funny as well. And, and luckily, through this idiot thing in here, uh, I, I, I turned into something rather unique. I turned into something unique in Australian country music, uh, uh, which, which, which has probably been a detriment to me as far as country music is concerned, but not as far as the people are concerned, which is why I said to you before about, you know, the industry uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't care about me that much, but it's the people that my fans are the ones that have... Is it the don't know how to take you? Is Oh, definitely that's, a, you know, it's probably got, you know, also uh, the fact that I've been openly gay all this time, there's always, there's, all, there's that as well. Uh, there's that thing. Uh, <laughs> there's that as well. Uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's been a part of who I am as well. Uh, has that been to your detriment? Oh, absolutely it has. Absolutely it has. Out West when you were a young boy? Uh, no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's why I love my fans. Because there's a respect there. Even though they'll put shit on me, <laughs> I give it back to them on stage. And there's a respect there that's built up over the years uh, because of that. Uh you know, hey, you know he's a pulfer, right? <laughs> Jeez, he's funny. It, it's, it's, it, there's a respect that's been built up over that, and and that's wonderful. And I don't think it could, I don't think it could occur anywhere else in the world other than Australia, where you know you you, you can be, like when 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 Becky Cole uh, came out uh, as you know as a lesbian, uh, so to speak. I'd been out in her and many others for years in my shows. I used to have a joke in my show. In fact, at, at the Gimpy Muster, twenty years ago, I used to, I used to say, "Oh, you know, you know, oh, you know, Becky Cole's a lesbian," and the sides of the tent would be blown out by, but the sides of the tent would be sucked in by people going, "Really?" <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, but uh, as the years went on, I used to say that on stage, and and, and the sides of the tent would be blown outwards with people going, "Ah, oh, we know." <laughs> and I, that's that's really what it's all about. I, I think if you're I think in country music, it's essential, especially here in Australia, to be yourself. And I try to tell young artists this all the time in, in, in master classes or wherever I can, that it's important to be yourself. If you're anybody else, an audience will see right through it really bloody quickly because they're more intelligent than you are at that point because they're looking at you. Also, the command thing. You know, if you come out confident, the audience are, in, are relaxed, right? But if you come out, oh, they'll 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 tear strips off you. Uh, so so what I do now is I walk out uh, while the blokes introducing me, going, "You finished yet? Hurry up! I'm not here all." I come out just really just taking everybody apart for five minutes before I even start, and the audience it it builds. There's a comfortability there for the audience. They know, oh, this is going to be good. This guy's got it together, you know. I, I think that's essential. 
How did you grow up in Tasmania? How did that work, being gay back in the... Oh, well, uh, I, I wasn't. I was just a kid. Did you fit in with all the other kids at no, that stage? No, I played doctors and doctors. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't play doctors and nurses, as it were. No, no, it was, uh, no I, I was always going to be different. That was for sure. There was all, you know, that's, 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 uh, that's innate. You're not, you don't become homosexual. You don't suddenly, you know, wean yourself off vagina and go to cock. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Uh, no, it's... When did you know? It's a hard question to... That's a that's an interesting and hard question. Uh, oh, look, probably by the time I was 11, 12, 13... I started to realise that, yeah, I, I better keep this quiet in certain circumstances, you know? Uh, this, this is obviously not the norm. Uh, but as I, as soon as I left school, I went, oh, well, bugger <laughs> that, you know, had enough of that. It, my best friend at school, who wasn't gay, was accused of being gay. He wasn't. Uh, that was that was hugely funny. Uh, that was hugely uh, interesting for me. I, that was really weird. Um, he got a, he went really strange over all of that. But he was he was just my best friend. He wasn't, and it wasn't because of me. He was just, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't particularly effeminate or anything like that. Uh, I was a smart ass. Uh, <laughs> if you picked on me at school. I always looked at you as being dumber. I always looked at you as, you know, if you picked on me at school, Peter Etheridge and all you other assholes, uh, I always looked at you as being below me on the on the pecking order. As far as I'm concerned, you were, you were less of a human being than me. And I don't know whether that was, that wasn't, taught to me or, or instilled in me in any way by my parents or my peers. It was just something that I innately knew that, no, you are below me for doing that because that's just not right. And you will regret that one day, I'm sure. And over the years, many of those boys, uh, you know, have come up to me, uh, you know, and tried to shake my hand and, and uh, I've taken their hand and, I, you know, I've, it shows. You know, I used to go to school with you, and and and, and not mention anything about the the pig on, but I did. I mentioned it to them. You were an asshole to me at school. Yeah, yeah, I was a bit. No, I I laid it on them. How did you enjoy school? I didn't enjoy school. Uh, I did. I, certain things were enjoyable. For instance, uh, I was picked on mercilessly, absolutely mercilessly at 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 high school. Uh, uh, f from from the first year onwards, they were all country kids. It was a boarding school, and I was a dago, what's called a dago. I went I went to the boarding school by day, so I was in Tamworth, and I went to Farrah Memorial Agricultural High School. Uh, picked on mercilessly at school. In fact, I was to give you an example of how bad it was. I was rolled in barbed wire one day and rolled down a hill, and they thought that was funny. They thought that was funny. Uh, there was a king brown snake one day. 
they were mucking around with and and brought and asked me to go down to this certain thing to get this whatever I can't remember the circumstance or something knowing full well there was a king brown snake there and thought that was funny uh you know just awful things but here's the thing I got them back in ways that humoured me I probably scarred some of them for life uh I electrified the piss trough at school with a, 40, huh. with a 48 volt fence and pulser. I was a smart little bastard. <laughs> Don't pick on me. I'll get you back. Might take years, but I'll get you back. Uh, yeah, uh, that's funny to see kids in speedos uh, coming out of the pool, dying for piss, <laughs> getting electrocuted as soon as a stream hits the back plate. <laughs> What was your reaction at the time? Well, I would have got away with that, only I was in the last uh, cubicle, locked in the last cubicle, and as soon as I heard the first kid get thrown against the doorway, I was just cracking up with laughter. Yeah, that, that cost me a, a very broken nose. <laughs> but it was worth doing, you know? Yep. Did you have to outthink them? Yeah, yeah, all the time. And I could, because they were stupid. Yeah, that was the thing. People who do that, You've got to understand that people who pick on other people are stupid. There is no other way to put that. They are stupid. There's no reason to pick on somebody. There's no reason to do that. Is that their own insecurities? Oh, absolutely. It's got it's got everything to do with a whole range of things. It's it, it's it's not it's not insecurities in a way. It's superiority too. You know, they think they're superior to you when they're actually not. They're just thugs and stupid, you know. Uh, but I got around that as the years got years went on, and I'm really, really good at judging that character too. Over the years, as being an entertainer, you really get good at judging that type of character, and I'm really good at pushing that to the limit at my shows. I'll see someone that I know is a bully, that I know is a bully, and I'll pick on him. I will pick on him mercilessly at the show until he's almost weeping. And I, I do that purposely because because of that. Because you can. Because I can. And, and you know, it, it's just the way I... It, it's, it, it's, it's, it's their fault for doing it to me in the first place that made that... Uh, as soon as I left school and, and uh, 10 years in the entertainment industry, I started to realise that there's certain inalienable things that make you powerful when you've got a microphone in your hand uh you know i, I to, to give you an example another example of this i, I um, when i went uh, left buddy williams and went down to um sydney in 1980 1981 the caterpillar became a butterfly uh very gay aphorism um but but it, literally that's what happened to me i really came out of my shell during that time thank you buddy williams you gorgeous thing uh, he took me under his wing. He was just—he was just a delightful man. Uh, uh, when I got to Sydney, I couldn't get any work. I wasn't getting any—you know—I wanted to get work. And what do you do? You're fiddle. We don't need fiddle play. We don't. What do you? Right? What? Uh, if Buddy Holly had a play to fiddle, I'd be a millionaire. Uh, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But so I had to find ways of getting work. So I said to this one particular agent one day, I said, in frustration, I said, look, you've got to have venues, right, that your artists won't do because for whatever reason, right? 
Now, this, this particular agent who will remain unnamed because he's quite powerful in the industry today, uh, he, uh, he said, oh, right, here's one. The Railway Hotel at Liverpool. Rough. Rough is not the word. Now, I've got to tell you that the, the guys that go to these pubs and these venues, uh, I've befriended many of them over the years and they're lovely, lovely people and have no reason to pick on people. There's the thing, right? There's no reason to be afraid of them because they're not going to pick on you. There's no reason. They've got no reason to pick on a little thing like me. No reason at all. And as soon as I realised that, wow, the world was open to me as an entertainer. As soon as I realised that, that one thing. There's no reason for a, a, a great big six foot four bikey to pick on me. No reason at all. In fact, I can grab his leg and start rooting it and his other mates will piss themselves laughing. It's just, there's no reason, and I've done that, there's no reason why, you know. So I went to this Liverpool hotel one day, and I, uh, uh, this uh, it was a Sunday afternoon gig, and let me tell you the audience. Let me explain the audience at the Liverpool Hotel at Railway, the uh, Railway Hotel at Liverpool in 1981. I walk in, I'm a fiddle player, I've got my little backing tapes that I've done, and the violin, and I've, a microphone, there's a, I've walked in, there's... So there's four corners in this bar, right? So over here, you've got truckies, big, okay? Over here, you've got bikies, New Zealanders and bikies. Over here, you've got Aboriginals, right? And over here, you've got another crowd of thugs of some kind, the, in, the outer Sydney, western suburbs thugs, right? That's, that's and, and a lot of these venues ended up giving me work over the years because of the fact that when I was there they never had a problem because they were all too busy laughing that's when I realised the power that you have as an entertainer and the importance of it as well the importance of being an entertainer you have a a duty as an entertainer uh, that's how I've really taken that to heart uh, to 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 teach an audience, to to take them through certain things that they need to be taught, uh, and I I took that on really powerfully, uh, to really strongly. I took that on because I I believe that that's absolute genuine thing you have to do as an entertainer is the power that you have, and you've got to be careful with it. But at places like the Liverpool Hotel, the Railway Hotel at Liverpool, is the fact that uh, you know I I realised that my job is my job is to be uh, a cooler, if you will. Not a bouncer, but a cooler. I've got to cool this situation down. How do you do that? Well, I'll just be the idiot. That I'll be, I'll just be the idiot. I used to do, you know, I, I do the, the sound check, test one, two, test one, two, test one, two. And they're all going, oh, test one, two, two, two. And I, so I chucked the microphone to a big Kiwi guy. He said, here, you fucking do it then. Right? And then you get the microphone and, poor Cardo, Cardo. And all his mates would start pissing themselves around. You know. I said, fine, you're doing the sound check. I don't have to worry. You know, those sort of things. You know, letting yourself be moulded by the audience too is, 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 is a, it's a really important thing. I used to do the Macquarie Arms Hotel at Windsor on the back of a truck 
And the publican used to always love having me because he had three of the biggest bikey gangs in Australia come to the hotel on the weekends and cause all sorts of trouble. But when I was there on the back of that truck on Saturday afternoons, there was hardly a problem because they were too busy having a good time. You know, I'd, I'd be picking on them and, and they'd just be pissing themselves. <laughs> Little bloke, do you, he just said that to you. Do you what he just said to you? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a change from being picked on for being the small guy to being the small guy being able to pick on the big guys. It was, it, it, it sort of it reversed uh, almost and, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And, and that's how it's been over the years. I'm, I don't get, I still get, don't get me wrong, I, I, you know, a, 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 occasionally there's dickheads that you just are so dumb that you just, <laughs> just, and that's what I'm saying. People that pick on you are really dumb. They just are dumb, stupid idiots. They just don't get it. They don't get anything. And they'll be like that with anybody. It's not just you. How do you feel when you're making people laugh? Oh, it's the greatest feeling in the world. Honestly, I know why comedians are so... I know why real comedians, I, I say the real comedians. Wouldn't you call yourself a comedian? No, no, I, I'm not a stand-up comedian. No, I'm, you know, I, no I, I'm just funny. I'm not a comedian. Is that tough? To be funny? Is, it, is oh, there pressure to be funny? There's no pressure to be funny. I'm just naturally funny. I'm just an idiot on stage. I love doing stupid bloody things and that make people laugh. I just love that. It's like a family. It's like, to me, they it just become a family. They just become, you know, my family for that two hours, three hours, whatever it is. They just, I just love them. I really love them. And they, I think that comes across in my performances, the fact that I actually love them. And, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. You know, occasionally you'll get the idiot. Occasionally you'll get the idiot. There was one guy, where was it, Parks? No, Forbes, down down there, uh, central New South Wales there, uh, Forbes. And for some reason, he didn't like the fact that I was gay, right? That was, that was, his, that was his thing. It didn't matter, nothing else mattered, but the fact that I was gay. He'd come to my show, right? And he'd walk around telling people, you know he's gay, right? You know, he's, he's gay. They'd be clapping and have a good... You know, why are you, you know he's gay, right? He's a, he's a freaking pufter. You know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's up the bum. He's, he's, he's all that. And he was doing this. And that's what he'd do. That was his thing, right? I could never get over him. He's just... I could never get past him. He was just... That was his thing, right? There's another guy at Moree uh, at, uh, at, at, at two shows until I... I said, uh, until I got him banned, until I said, listen, if, if he comes to the gig, the gig's over. I'm done. I'm out of here, right? There's one guy. He's only a young guy. He's like, I, I was 45 and he's only like 18, 19, 20. Just hated me. Absolutely hated me. Just didn't. Got, and I remember he, one night he got behind me in, on uh, the area where I played in the club. He got behind me. And uh, towards the end of the night, he just grabbed the power cord and he went like this and just stopped my show. Just just went like that. I mean, that's just dumb, isn't it? It's just the, stu the stupidity of that is just unbelievable. And you, you, some people you just can't get around. But it's so, it's just one or two people. It's not... Dozens. It's one or two over 40, 50 years. How good is that?
Were you obsessed with the violin back in the day when you started? Were you constantly, when you didn't have to, would it be something that you'd just want to play, 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 play all the time? I tell kids, uh, when I started on this thing, I was, I, I, it was in my hand, well, 24-7. It was just there all the time. Luckily, uh, in Sydney, when I went to Sydney, uh, I lived in Roselle. Uh, for some reason, it was. <laughs> I live with a guitar player called Jim Pennells, who's now one of the great jazz players in Australia uh, and the world. I live with him. Uh, luckily, he was always playing Django Reinhardt. He'd say, hey, 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 bring your fiddle in, have a listen. And I'd try to play, and I'm just hopeless because I'm, you know, I'm not, I haven't got that sort of. Yeah, anyway. Uh, I, I I sort of get by with it now, but yeah, he was, every note had a chord, uh, uh, another chord. Uh, but uh, uh, next door was the saxophone player from the Dynamic Hypnotics. Oh, wow. Uh, and they used to rehearse at that thing, and I used to go out, over and play fiddle next door. With that them. must have been a soul uh, kind of feeling. It was a soul kind of feeling. <laughs> very, very good, mate. <laughs> very good. Yeah, no, uh, uh, I did a gig, a couple of gigs with them, uh, actually, back in the 80s. Uh, they were wonderful. Uh, Phil and Tommy lived the next block over. Uh, Emmanuel. Yeah, uh, yep. it was a tragedy um, I managed to meet. Filled on a couple of occasions and worked with him a few times. He was always going to go early. But oh, a always. champion, champion man. Oh, I always knew Phil was going to kick kick the bucket early. We all sort of knew. He was, he just used to charge. <laughs> he charged through life, that man. Yeah. God, love him. Anyway, uh, we had a bluegrass band together after Gold Rush, uh, back in those, after Gold Rush back in those days. Uh, yeah. Um, but Tommy and Phil, and, and uh, we're doing the Three Weeds, the Rose Shamrock and Thistle at Roselle there one day playing with uh, Rosewood Country Bluegrass I was telling you about earlier, Mark and Marnie Burgess, uh, and uh, ACDC walked in. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. We gave, we gave, this is a story, we gave our autographs to Kiss. To kiss, we gave our autographs to Kiss in 1982. They were they came out to Australia to do their first big tour, and there were ten thousand screaming kids outside the the Sydney uh, the Sydney Town Hall. Right, we were inside doing a gig uh, for some sort of fair or something, uh, doing a bluegrass set. And it was Salt Creek Bluegrass Band. I'm sorry, it wasn't uh, uh, Mark and Marnie. It was Salt Creek Bluegrass Band with with uh, uh, anyway. Uh, uh, but we were playing there and, and uh, we, we knew that they were, Kiss were coming uh, to be on the balcony. And if you know the Sydney Town Hall, we were playing inside on the stage with all the fair and stuff going on here. And we were playing up on the stage, bluegrass stuff. Good bluegrass band. Uh, um, Jenny Shivan on the banjo. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, and there was these two walkways that go out to balconies on either side of the Town Hall in Sydney. And we heard that Kiss was going to come along, so I said, "Oh, quick, quick, put your autograph, autograph this as a uh, Kiss, Kiss uh, to Kiss. We love you, uh, Salt Creek Bluegrass Band. We sign it all, right?" <laughs> and I got up on top of the speaker stacks as they opened the door. 
uh, Kiss came out in their big regalia and everything and said, hey, hey, hey. And, and I handed him the piece of paper, right? And he's gone, I haven't got a pen. He says, no, no, it's our autograph. <laughs> and he's took it and they've all laughed and they've walked out to the 10,000 screaming kids. So that's that story. But probably doesn't, that, they, that wouldn't have meant a thing to him, but uh, it was funny for us at the time. It was a great Norman Gunston moment yeah, when he'd a, say, uh, yeah, you know, like, would you like an autograph? Yeah, would you like an autograph? <laughs> Who would you like me to make it out to? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. It was one of those moments, yeah, yeah. It's been a career of moments. Is one that is there one that sticks out to you that really you will... So many. No, no. I've been asked that before. Uh, there are so many, honestly. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, there's many instances, you know, that stick out. Not necessarily me either. Uh, it's it's just the situation at the time. Uh, things like... Well, back in the old days when the gold, golden guitars was a, a, a movable feast, uh, they didn't have the venue in Tamworth that they've got now, the Tamworth Regional Entertainment Centre, the track as it's become affectionately called. Uh, that was a movable feast. They had a in a big tent once, uh, which was a huge mistake because a big storm came through. And the, you know the central pole that holds up the circus tent? It's this, it's this, it's a lump of wood that's 30 feet high, right, like this. It came off the ground two or three metres and was 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 stump, was jumping back down onto the ground with a, wow. with, with a big thump and everybody was running. And I remember that. Um, but these instances, right, it's not necessarily thing. But one of the ones that do stick out when you ask, one of the ones that sticks out when you said that was the lack of understanding of our heroes. And I was talking about this before. Buddy Williams walked out on stage. It was at the dressage centre in a, in a tin shed. And it was bound to be, you know, because it rained again. And it was just so, it, it was raining so loud that you, you, they had to stop the performance a number of times because you just simply couldn't hear anything. Wow. And I remember Buddy Williams walking out when the rain had subsided. Buddy Williams had walked out and he started doing his... Uh, you know, there's a spot that's near and dear to me back there's where his big baritone voice. Uh, beautiful. Extraordinary. A couple of Americans were there, Minnie Pearl, I believe, and, and a couple of others were there. And uh, Buddy Williams walked out on stage and started doing his yodeling and his things. And at the end of it, they automatically gave him a standing ovation. But they were the only two or three people that stood up. The only ones. They thought he was amazing. They thought he was obviously a, an Australian legend. Yep. It goes to show you how... Uh, yeah. Because you've won a couple of golden guitars. Yeah. I've actually got two. I've actually... The two I've got at home uh, out of the, the five that I've been... that I can claim, um, the two at home that I've got, the two ones that I won back-to-back -back instrumental awards for in 93, 94... Kanga's one of my favourites. Well, Kanga and Kindi, uh, very original instrumentals. Uh, they, um, uh, they're actually real ones. And I say real ones, and there's a bit of a joke amongst the aficionados or the historians of the industry. A bit of a joke amongst us because we say real ones because they're ones that were actually founded in the Minson Scientific Foundry uh, factory by John Minson, uh, 
they're actually made by John Minson. So, yeah, they're real ones uh, as far as we're concerned. Well, they're heavier too. They're real. Kindy and Kanga, could you give us a little bit of a... a well, uh, Kindy is just a... Kindy... It's a, it's a polka that I wrote. It's nothing special, but uh, Kanga was written uh, because I saw uh, um, Earl Scruggs, uh, the Scruggs style of banjo playing with his... He was, uh, up until then, the, the Reno style was a two-finger banjo style, uh, but Earl Scruggs used three fingers. Uh, he, he And he had these Scruggs tunable pegs. And uh, he used to do back-behind-the-bridge picking. And I thought, how could I translate that onto the fiddle? Well, it's already done. Fiddle playing, fiddle violinists already, already do pizzicato, you know? They already do pizzicato. So could I stick that in a bluegrass song? And I did, because I come up with a story of watching kangaroos bounce across an outback fence. So I use that as a as spotting where the kangaroos are bouncing across the outback fence. Yeah, yeah. I love. I've always loved the the slow things with the fiddle though. That's always got me as the. That, uh, the, that's where the fiddle really comes alive is when it sings um, and that's that's beautiful it's just so beautiful it gives me goosebumps when I play it you know when when I hear that coming out of me it's going, wow oh, I'm doing that oh that's good <laughs> it gives me goosebumps so it must be okay it must be good do you have fiddle players that you look up to that you oh will... Christ yes who are the, some of the ones that... oh nearly everyone in Australia <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, as I said, I've never classed myself as a fiddle player. I've always been an entertainer. Um, it's a funny thing. It's really weird. Even though I've, you know, I can keep up with the best. Uh, I don't mind saying, but I, I, I've used it as a tool. Uh, as a, uh, sorry, I'm sorry. I've, I've used it. I've used it as a tool to, 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 to entertain. Uh, yeah. Entertainer, when did that sort of start to evolve? Where were you in your career when you went, wow, I can... Oh, that's really easy. It's a great question. I don't know whether it was one particular gig, but I can give you a for instance uh, with it. Uh, what happens when it's string breaks? What happens if the power goes out? What happens if something fails? What do you do? What do you do then? Well, you're going to have to have some shit to pull out. You're going to have to have. You're going. You're going to have to be funny in some way. What about artists that don't, though? I've seen that, and it's a horrible fail to me. It's just I feel so bad for them. I can I can do jokes about about people being gay, even though they're not, and get away with it, and it gets back to them, and they still think it's funny. Yeah. Like, can you turn again? Can you turn again? Can you turn again? She's got one leg either side of the fence for years. Uh, all sorts of things. Um, just ask Becky Cole. Um, um, 
uh, yeah, I can do jokes about those sort of things. But what happens if things fail? What do you do? Have you got a dance routine? Do you do a dance routine? Do you tell jokes? What do you do? Do you keep them alive? And I've told Angus, young Angus Gill, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of proud to say that in a way I've had an effect on his his um, perspicacity, if you will, because he's seen me perform over the years and I've told him about, you know, it's important to have things up your sleeve. You know, if a microphone stuffs up or your guitar stuffs up or something doesn't work. Because Sarah Stora, in January, she wins eight golden guitars. She's the talk of the town. She's the biggest star in country music history. She's the female equivalent of John Williamson. Everybody's going, ooh, wow, ah, ooh, wow, ah, true blue Sheila. Fantastic, she's gorgeous. In August, she comes to the Gimpy Muster. Nick Irby, ladies and gentlemen, eight golden guitars at the Tamworth Country Music Festival. You know his voice, that iconic voice of Nick Irby's. Wonderful voice. Uh, love you, Nick. Uh, and and uh, he's now doing wedding celebrations. Uh, I'd hate to be married by Nick Irby. It would be... Anyway, um, so he's um, he's introducing her on stage. Will you please welcome to the stage eight golden guitars, the talk of the town, the Australia's country music, a brand new, our brand new female star, Sarah Storer, and she comes out. The band started, the guitar's not working. She's going... <laughs> and this goes on for 10 minutes. No. 10 minutes. Bands still playing. They're laughing. Audience is laughing. Nicely, but laughing. Come on. Uncomfortably. Uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Everybody sees that it's uncomfortable. That would never happen to me. It just cannot happen to me. What would you do? You can't. Well, can't, I've got so many things up my sleeve. It just wouldn't happen. doesn't matter. I, there's so many things. I've worked out... I wrote three 20-minute routines of comedy just in case something like that happens. That alone, you know, like that that alone is a backup. Uh, and, and because of my perspicacity for acting, I can project my voice really well. So if the PA stuff's up and the lights go out, damn, those audiences are still going to be entertained until it gets back up. You said that you would have liked to have become, if you had another chance, to have become an actor and in theatre. Do you think, though, by what you're doing... You're doing that anyway? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you are living up to your potential? Oh, I, I, I would love to, I would, I'd love to have a meaty role in something, a real role, like in a, in a film or a, just something, because I think I could do it really well, you know? Have you thought about casting? Ah, uh, I, I couldn't go through that. <laughs> I just couldn't go through it, you know? Mainly because of the fact that uh, well, if I sat in the casting room, there's 20, 20 other guys trying to go for a role. I, I knew I would. I, I know I won't get it. Uh, I know I won't get it. You'd have to. You'd have to see me. I've had some extraordinary things happen because people have seen me work at a show. That's where my. That's where it, it lies. Ch you know, Chad Morgan called me an idiot, right? That's a. That's a. That's a badge I wear with pride. You know, for Chad Morgan to call you an idiot? Come on. That's a badge. That's a, uh, Chad and I are really good mates. And Chad called me an idiot. I, that's a badge of pride to me. That's, that's huge. That's, you know, for Chad Morgan to call me an idiot? 
You're an idiot. <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're a fucking idiot. It's one of those things that Chad Morgan really is another one that is Original, so good at being himself. So good at being himself. And that's what it's really all about. You know, people come off stage. I come off stage. I'm the same person. You know, people don't. They go, John Williamson's not. What do you see there? What John Williamson's not. Everybody knows. What happens? What What's behind the persona? Well, on stage, he's this iconic true blue guy that does these things like Merv. And off stage, he's, he's rather uh, unassuming and shy in a way. Because it's interesting, a lot of those performers, it's the performance. It's all about the performance. You look at, say, Gary McDonald. We talked about Norman Gunston Completely earlier. Completely different person off stage. Yeah. Is that where they find their outlet as the performer? Oh, well, I dare say. I dare say. I just love doing what I do. I just love doing what I do, whatever I'm doing. Does that make any sense? Does Absolutely, make- because but you have worked with uh, one of the icons, John Williamson. You mentioned yeah. him. How was that experience? Well, it was extraordinary. It was my place in country music history at the time. I, I, I thought it was. You say at the time. Well, I, uh, that's something that you know, I, I can't talk about. There's certain things that I actually can't talk about uh, uh, under, under threat of... of, of uh, of legal action, frankly, I mean, I've, 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 I've said, to give you an example, I said something on Facebook quite innocently one day about something that occurred, and I was just, holy crap! The industry came down on me, ABC, EMI, APRA, AMCOS, uh, John Williamson's manager at the time. I got phone calls. Take that off. Delete that. You can't say that. Shit. So you, 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 under threat of defamation, you can't tell the truth. Is social media too important in music these days? It's too important in everything these days. I hate social media in a way. I loathe it in a way. I'd love to go back to the days that we didn't have it. I think it's ruined the world. I absolutely think it's ruined the world. I mean, everybody... I mean, you look at the current situation with COVID, everybody's become an expert. But they're getting told crap by other dickheads that believe what it's just, and it's it's made up bullshit a lot of the time. It's just, oh, no, it's crap. You can tell it's crap. You can see it's crap. It's written like crap. It's crap. Um yeah, uh, the, I call it the University of uh, YouTube and the College of Google. Uh, you know, people get their degrees of idiocy from from those two platforms. You must be glad you're in Queensland. Talking of COVID, you can still go out to Winton and work. You know, uh, I posted a thing on Facebook. Uh, see, here's the thing, and I don't know why this is. I really don't. But other people have been blocked and banned by Facebook for much lesser things than I've said and done. And I really don't know why. Because you don't hold back in a lot of your posts. Oh, it's pretty obvious I don't. No. (laughs) No, I don't. I don't see a need to. You know, I don't care. I don't care. 
Is that a good place to be now, That where you are, that you don't care, that you just are you and... Yeah, yeah, it is. Just... Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I love it. It's good being me. I love to be me. Because <laughs> you turn back the clock to when you were mercilessly picked on and now it's, as you say, turn the tables and now you can... I don't pick on anybody. I, 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 I don't really pick on anybody. But I, you can be you. I can be you. I, I tell I tell it how, how, how it is, right? And it's not in my opinion, it's how it is. You know the expression about everybody's got the right to an opinion? No, you haven't. Nobody's got the right to an opinion. Nobody's got the right to an opinion. You've got the right to have an argument. You know, give me your facts. You've got the right to have an argument. But you haven't got a right to an opinion. Opinion is vacuous. Everybody's got an arsehole. Opinions are like arseholes. Everybody's got one. <laughs> Opinions mean nothing. But give me your facts. Argue. Right? Give me your argument. And I don't mean argument in the sense of... I mean, give me your argument for what you're saying. You know, give me the facts for what you're saying. Is there anyone over your 40, 50 year career that you've been intimidated by? Don't be an arsehole. <laughs> he's been, he's, look, there's, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely there has. There are bullies in not the so industry. Much, not so much. No, being... there are bullies in the industry. That's simple. That's a simple fact. There are bullies in the industry and they'll use it against you every, every, at every opportunity, they will they will try and use it against you. Yeah. To give you an example of one that I can actually mention, when I was doing the cruise ships, and I don't do them anymore simply because things got harder for me through this process. Let me tell you the process. Um, I'd be on stage being a comedy instrumentalist that they'd hire me to do, right? So out of an audience of 700 people, one person will complain and I will be brought up to the cruise director and have to write out an apology to this one person. Tough. That it's, is tough. It's ridiculous is what yeah. it is. It's ridiculous. Uh, and one, one example that really, that really got up my goat and sort of, it, it sort of my days on the cruise ships were numbered because of this. Um, I, you, it's a great job if you can get it on the cruise ships. Great job because you get paid, you know, a couple of thousand bucks for being on a cruise ship for eight to eight days, and you only work one night. You only work one night. The rest of the time, you're on a fucking cruise ship, <laughs> right? You, you're on a fucking cruise ship. You're having a great time with with, with all the other passengers. And you're the only you're the only person on the ship that's paid by the ship that can actually do that. The only person. You you have access to both uh, uh, highway, the highway, uh, the, the ship's highway in the middle. Down you can go to the cruise bar after eleven with nineteen fifty six prices, and everybody smokes cigarettes. You can do that, right? But you can also go to all the expensive restaurants and bars and at twenty percent off, twenty five percent off, because you you can also do that. No one else can do that on the ship. You're the only person that can do that. So I'm on a ship. I'm out there cruising the islands. Done me, done me. I was on the first night, right? The first night. I've got seven days of cruising in the South Pacific. Thank you, right? Great job if you can get it. So about the second or third night, I'm up. 
with a, a mob of young Australians, right? Their fathers and mothers used to come to my gigs. How old am I? 64. Um, uh, 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 you know, their mother and father used to come to my gigs and they'd have a, you know, oh, we used to see you and you we were only the title. Uh, and uh, so I'm having a great time at the Chinese restaurant on board this ship, right? Having a great time. With these, and they're shouting me the meal. These kids are shouting me the meal because I'm, you know, legend to their father, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Having a great time. And the lights go out, right, for whatever reason. And I say, oh, quick, uh, quick, turn the lights back on. I'm, I'm Catholic. I'm getting a stiffy. Da-da-da-da, right? <laughs> Life of the party. They're all pissing themselves laughing. Oh, well, at 6 a.m. the next morning, there's a little piece of paper put under my door. It's, please come to the cruise director's office immediately on receipt of this notice. You go, oh, right, what's going on? Oh, splash my face, you know. Right, 7 a.m., I'm at the cruise director's. He says, oh, g'day, Paul, how you going, mate? Hi, mate, sit down. Is there a problem? Uh, yeah. Were you at the Chinese restaurant last night? I'm going, yeah, yeah. Uh, were you with a group of young Australians? Yeah, yeah. Did you notice there was a, an old couple sitting across from you at the table? There's a lot of people in the restaurant. And the lights went out at one stage, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Did you say? <laughs> Did you say, I'm a Catholic, turn the lights back on, I'm a Catholic, I'm getting a stiffy? And I said, yeah, yeah, I said that. I said, okay, this is an off-boarding offence. Wow. Right, so they could put me off at the next port of call, right, wherever it was, and I'd have to get back home at my own expense. Hmm. Uh, we were in the middle of the South Pacific. I didn't want this to happen, right? So he said, oh, look, if you write a letter to the purser, uh, the cruise, write a letter to me, uh, the cruise line, and to the ship's captain, and also a, a, a letter of apology to these people. I said, what, for this? Are you kidding me? I got really narky. I got, no, this is fucking bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, right? I said, look, if you don't do it, we're going we're gonna to have to put you off at the next port of call. It's just the law. It's the way it is. And you'll have to get home. And it was going to be uh, Mystery Island, which means it was a helicopter <clears> or, <throat> or a boat right, across to the mainland of, of Fiji or one of the islands to then get, hopefully get a plane back at my expense, right? And I wouldn't be paid. It was mm. like nightmareville. So I did all this. I said, what did they... So he showed me what they complained about, right? And he knew exactly what this was about, right? They... On, on the bedside table of, of everybody's cabin is a... Uh, a form, a little card... He said, what, what did you like or dislike about the cruise, right? They'd filled out seven of these in the tiniest writing, these two old people. And the, and Paul, the cruise director, I, I haven't said his last name and I haven't said the name of the cruise line, so. Uh, uh, but he'll know if he ever sees this. Um, uh, he showed me what they'd written and, and he said to me, yeah, they're, they're simply bucking for another free cruise. That's what this is all really? about. Really? Wow. It's a free cruise. We give them a free cruise for this. That's what this is all about. We, we've had this often. We get this often. 
So that you know, there you go. That's 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 how your 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 quick wit can can fuck with you. Well, let me get back to when I was asking about uh, those that might intimidate you. What I meant was when ACDC walk into a gig that you're at. Oh, no, immediately it was uh, we were all going, you bet you can't play bluegrass, you pricks. <laughs> right? Just all that. What was their reaction? Oh, they pissed themselves. They were having a good time. In fact, the guitar player... Um, What's his name? Uh, uh, Angus. Angus, the little Angus, got up and played a couple of tunes with us. <laughs> Who's the person? Because you said, like Bob Dylan said to you, uh, "You must be pixie." You must be pixie. Who's no, the person? You must be pixie. Who's the person that you've most enjoyed working with over your time? Oh, it would have to be John Williamson. I mean. It, it's it's there's a uh, there's a happiness and heartache at the same time there unfortunately did you ever think to you've done tours of the states did you ever think to head over there and stay over there uh, i i honestly can't stand most americans I, <laughs> they annoy the shit out of me they really do i i uh and i i'm being perfectly honest here uh, honestly i i really have a problem with their people say americans they're so humble and nice they they're always keen to greet you and they're so friendly in fact you know why because they don't know who's got a gun <laughs> i'm serious i believe that it's been that 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 wholesome camaraderie that we see has been developed from the fact you don't know who's got a gun honestly you don't want to walk into a place like we do in australia you go hey bacon and eggs and i want the eggs soft and if they don't come soft i'm not paying you right well, you couldn't say that in America because the bloke would go, hey, whatever. I mean, it, it, that's... I was in Springfield, Missouri. I was calling it misery all the time because it was minus seven degrees. So, and the Americans were always so polite at correcting me. It's Missouri. It's Missouri. Or it's Missouri. It's Missouri. And I was going, misery. It's bloody misery. That's what it is. It's Springfield misery. I was just, you know, having a lark. So I go, we've got a night off in Springfield misery. And I've got a night off and I, I look to see if there's a gay bar in town. Because I thought, you know, uh, I've I, the previous night uh, they'd taken us out to Cowboys 2000, right? Is that not a gay name? Cowboys 2000 is... Three football size arenas, right? Three football size arenas in a in a in a in a enclosed shed. And when they say Cowboys two thousand, they literally mean two thousand smelly leather clad cowboys under a roof with three football rodeo arenas. It's insane. I've never seen anything like it in my life. It was just extraordinary. The smell of testosterone was in the air. But it was just extraordinary. It was the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. So the next night I thought, let's go and see what a gay bar is like. So I looked up and see if there's a gay bar in Springfield, Missouri. And I saw this thing called Martha's Vineyard. I've gone, that's got to be a gay bar. So I've got this taxi. It's the worst, dirtiest, smelliest taxi I've ever travelled in in my life with cigarette butts and bottles on the back floor. Into, and it was, mine, it's freezing cold, middle of winter. Into uh, this bar 
in the centre of uh, the town in Springfield. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's it's a gay bar, except it happens to be a black, black fella gay bar. Oops. So they're all they're all uh, they're all African Americans in there, right? So I'm, I'm and they're all huge, just enormous. So I'm the only little uh, you know little white fella walks in through the door. Hi. Uh, so I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I walked up the bar. I said, uh, "Scotch and dry, thanks." And there's two big. You're not from you're not from around here, are you? I didn't know whether he wanted to hit me or fuck me. I'm not sure. Anyway, fact is, um, um, they, uh, anyway, about five minutes later, there's a group of them having a great time. It's fantastic. It's fun. It's great. I heard the best version of um, of uh, Rainbow Connection by Kermit from this from this guy who could sing like a like an absolute dream. Unbelievable. It was like. Rainbow connection. It was just extraordinary, this guy. Anyway, so it was about... What I didn't know about American bars, all American bars, is that they shut at 1am in the morning and that's it. There's nothing else open. It's shut at 1am. Well, by 1am there was a blizzard outside, right? And I'm. we're all pissed. Everybody's pissed. They were all getting pushed out of this bar and there's all these blackfellas getting in their cars and there's there's cars going sideways down the street and bashing into other cars and everybody's laughing and, oh, and just carrying on like a bunch of poofters. Anyway, it was just fabulous and it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I'm, I'm, I'm just in fits of laughter watching this thing. I've never, ever seen anything like this. Just seriously, cars just bumping and crashing into each other and... About half an hour goes by, and it's, and then the street lights go out. So I'm in the middle of Springfield, Missouri, not knowing where the hell I am, half pissed, thank God, right, because at least I was warm, uh, not caring so much about the blizzard. And I remember there was this, uh, this, is, this is America for you. So uh, there was no taxis, no phone, but there's nothing. There's, it's completely, everybody's gone. And the bars, the light, and the, I've turned around, the light and the bars will blink out. That's it. Everything's dark. So I'll get my phone out, uh, put the torch on, and I'm, I remember that there was a highway. I'd come in off a highway, which is probably a couple of kilometres away, somewhere in that direction, Right. So I started going towards it. Eventually, I, I saw the lights of the highway. So I, I kept going through the streets of this blizzard, literally a bloody blizzard. I got up to the highway and there was a, a truck stop that was up here, right? So it's about, I think it's about quarter to two by that time, 45 minutes through this. I'm starting to really seize up, getting really cold. Um, uh, the alcohol is wearing off. Uh, 45 minutes. And so I got it was about a quarter to two. And as I get closer to the thing, the sign on the on the petrol station goes. <laughs> and there's a light in where the office is, right? And there's a bloke obviously doing the till for the night. So so I walk up to the, the thing, knowing I, I haven't got a clue. I don't know. There's no phone box. There's no nothing. So I, I rap on the window. Right? 
And he turns around and looks at me and goes, goes back to counting. I go, oh, f-. He reaches under the thing, pulls out a shotgun and lays it on the counter wow. without even looking at me. Without even looking at me, right? So I go, oh, Christ, what am I going to do, right? So I pull out a $100 bill and I go, he grabs a shotgun and turns around and I lick the $100 bill and I slap it on the window. That shotgun went down and those doors opened that fucking quick. It was incredible. He drove me home. Wow. That's America for you. But what about the music? Like Keith Urban's made it big over there, as you said. You well, he played the game. Sure. He made the mistake of coming over here and saying, I'd like to thank Jesus Christ when he stood on stage getting the gold guitar for the instrumental award that I should have got in 2000. But we won't go into that. <laughs> I played on the freaking instrumental that he won for. I played the fiddle on the instrumental that he won. <laughs> Has he played the game well? Oh, he's played it incredibly well, hasn't he? $600 million boy. Come on. And he's married to uh, another $600 million. So, I mean, they've, there's a dynasty. They've created a dynasty, those two. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think you, they're very much in love. Do you wish you'd played the game better? No, I can't. I can't play that game. I can't be that fake. I don't... No. Yeah, but no. But yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I can't play. I'm... I'm just uh, who I am and take it or leave it. You've been immortalised in the hands of fame. Is there any... El- and, and the Wax Museum. And the Wax Museum. And the noses of fame, <laughs> which are pulled up by two lesbians who bought the uh, Joe Maguire's hotel and didn't know what it was, and they threw it out to the tip. We all went up there, resurrected it, brought it back down and put it down and said, don't you move that again. Anyway, go on. So. <laughs> and the golden guitars, the accolades... What's left for you? Is there something that you Pension, like? bring it on. <laughs> I am just waiting for my pension, bring it on. Do you worry about the dexterity in the fingers? Uh, you know, I do have a, a trigger finger happening after all these years, right, in here, that's really annoying sometimes. I'm halfway through an instrumental and this finger will cock and I'll go, oh, shit. Come on, everybody, clap your hands. Come on, come on, I'll get the finger working by clapping. Come on, everyone. I'll stop and pretend I want the audience to clap their hands. Yeah, that worries me. But nothing else does. I don't, I, I'm going to be one of these poor bastards that's in a nursing home at the age of 85, hopefully not, uh, that's in a nursing home with a mind that's totally uh, compassmentous, but the body's completely fucked. <laughs> that's, that's how I'm going to be. So what else would you like to achieve? Well... <laughs> I'd really like to go to England and Ireland to play, to just do some playing, just to just to see, you know, I've traced my family heritage back to the 1700s in Ireland, so I'd at least be able I'd at least like to be able to visit County Clare and County Tipperary and that, you know, and and see the the real fiddlers and get a chance to play with them. I played with the Chieftains. I was the only fiddle player that 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 had the guts to get up with the Chieftains in Australia. None of the others all whipped out. I got up and played with them. Is there anything that you won't do on stage? Oh, I won't take my clothes off because you don't want to see that naked. That'd ruin, the, <laughs> that'd ruin the career. No one wants to see that. No, I don't think there's any. No, I don't think there's anything I wouldn't do on stage other than that. No, I don't think so. So COVID is really starting to uh, take effect and things are loosening to some degree. It never really affected me. 
Why not? Uh, it's because I, I, I did other things. There was other things I could do. Uh, I never really whinged about it. I wasn't on Facebook every day trying to keep my career alive, uh, you know, like some of them are, uh, you know, playing songs in their lounge rooms. And my new album's coming out. I, I, I wasn't like that. How have you seen the uh, the industry recording change over the years? 40, 50 years. It, you know, I remember starting with records and now look at how it's all gone digital. Is it an improvement? Gee, that's a, that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, I'm an audiophile, right? So there's nothing that comes close to a really expensive turntable and a really expensive tone arm and a really expensive diamond stylus. And the crackle. On a perfectly clean microfibered record through an expensive stereo amplifier into extraordinary speakers from Klipsch or something like that. There's nothing that comes close. God knows why, but you just can't do it with a CD. It just doesn't. It just doesn't come close. And I, 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 I look. There'll be people that'll argue that fact with me, but I'm sorry. I just don't think there's anything that comes close. Those grooves are made from vibration of a needle that's gone into that thing, and you're listening to that original vibration in that room. I just just don't think that digital comes near it. It comes close. Of course it does. Do you think we've lost something the way that music is presented these days with the Spotify's and... Oh, streaming has ruined music. David Bowie uh, said before he died that music will become like water. And it has. It's definitely... Yep. People think that they have the right to turn on a tap and get a glass of water without realising how much it actually costs to get that glass of water to them. Somebody did a, 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 a university study many years ago. Many years ago, it was worth about $124 a glass. What about music then? Is... Yeah, it's the same. Nobody, young people don't care about where it comes from or how it's made. or They don't, they don't give a damn. They just want it made. It's just, it's flotsam and jetsam now. It's just, uh, you know, and you've got idiots like Kanye and, you know. What advice would you give to emerging artists then that are trying to make it these days oh still be yourself that's really all you can do i mean that's evidence there that that's evidential you look at any artist who's really big uh they're pretty much themselves unfortunately kanye's like he is but he's pretty much kanye he's like an idiot all the time so that's fine uh you know that girl who had that hit the byron bay busker uh, sorry, the, yeah, the the busker girl from Byron Bay that had that monkey song or whatever it was. You know, that'll be it for her. She, you know, but that's okay. Make a couple few million dollars and sit on your ass for the rest of your life. That's what it's like these days. That's certainly changed that uh, that sort of thing. But streaming is a horrible mess. It's a horrible mess. There's companies that actually sell views. You know, you can apply to a company, right, and you can spend a certain amount of money with them and they'll give you a certain amount of actual streams. They'll give their fans, they'll give their fans to you for a certain amount of money. 
What, what is that? What, what is that? What is that? That's, that's not music. It's hollow, building a perception. It's all perception, it's nothing else. Well, you've spent a 40, 50 year career of being yourself and let's hope it just continues. Bring on the pension, mate. Bring it on. Hurry up. Haven't got all gone. Only got a few years left. Bring the pension on. 64. By the time I get to 67, right, which is my pension age, I reckon they'll put it up another two years. Pricks. Pixie Jenkins, it's been an absolute pleasure and thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Mark Peepers. Merry Mark Media Television Productions. Thank you, Mark Peepers. Really appreciate it. You've allowed me to talk about myself for the last couple of hours. Fantastic. What more could I ask for?